There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My 7 Wonders. Since the dawn of recorded time, some of the greatest monuments, mausoleums, and other mighty works of mankind have appeared on a list of wonders of the world. And like the seas, days of the week, or deadly sins, there are always seven of them. In ancient times, the seven wonders included hanging gardens, temples, and a lighthouse. A list of more modern wonders has on it the Empire State Building, the Taj Mahal, and the Great Wall of China. The seven engineering wonders of the world include the Panama Canal and the London sewage system. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast, and the guest I'm asking today is the comedian, writer and broadcaster David Baddiel. Over several decades, David has achieved great success in a career, or perhaps that's better described as three or four careers, spanning several aspects of writing and performing. From the late 1980s onwards, David has appeared on stage and screen as a comedian on his own or in collaboration, first with Rob Newman, later with Frank Skinner, with whom he created their fantasy football TV show. With Frank and the Lightning Seeds, he's to be found at the top of the charts, most years when England nearly, but don't quite, manage to win a major football tournament. More recently, David has written a number of best-selling children's books and has published several adult by which I mean grown-up, novels as well. He wrote the screenplay for a film starring Omidja Lilly, which he later turned into a stage musical. His recent one-man shows have explored his family history, fame and metaphysics, as well as the Twitterverse and the abuse to be found on the wonderful World Wide Web. But do you look at the world with a sense of wonder, David? You certainly explore lots of different things. Hello, Clive. Um, Hi, David. Do I look at the world with a, a with wonder? It's actually a major issue for me. In when you said metaphysics, I assume you're referring to my play God's Dice, uh, which uh, was on stage just before the pandemic and was due to transfer to the West End, and then the pandemic uh, screwed that up. And actually, oh, I didn't mean to cause you pain by bringing well, that up. Sorry. No, but it's it was actually a very central thing in that play because the play is really uh written from my own point of view as a sort of extreme atheist uh but uh as an extreme atheist i often uh talk to sort of either religious or semi-religious or agnostic people and they talk about but what you know where is your sense of wonder where what makes you do you have any sense of the miraculous and I don't want to give away anything about my seven wonders, but that play was to some extent an investigation of whether or not there is an equivalent of the religious miraculous in science, whether the way that science has gone over the last sort of, well, my my sort of lay understanding of it over the last sort of 60 years, particularly with quantum physics, is whether or not there's actually things that happen at that level that you would think, well, that's basically God, isn't it? Yeah, or at any rate, extraordinary or or wonderful. Yeah, but in terms of the smaller things in life, yeah, constantly I'm assailed by how wonderful life is. (laughs) Well, I think, uh, as you say, you're anticipating uh, perhaps uh, one of the bigger topics that you come from, the bigger wonders, Uh, but perhaps you can start with your first wonder. What's that? Well, that that is sort of what I was just saying about being assailed by how very uh, ordinary things in life can be wonderful. My favourite writer, John Updike, once said that it is the job of art to give the mundane its beautiful due. Uh, and my first choice is cats. Now, th- uh, some of your su- your wonders, which I've got a list of, have surprised me. Not so much this one, because I do know you're a cat owner, cat lover. Yeah. How, d- yeah. how many cats do you have at the moment, for I example? I have three at the moment. Uh, it's a mum and two of her children. She was a Unfortunately, she had a teenage pregnancy and gave birth to nine overall. We found good homes for seven of them and kept two of them uh, who she mainly now punches. I mean, she's not a good mum, I have to say. She she looks furiously at them like, what are you doing here? Uh, and then hits them a lot. 
But the reason I chose cats, I perhaps should start with a baseline thing, is I have had cats ever since I was a kid. When I grew up, uh, we had a cat called Fomfer. My dad called the cat Fomfer. Uh, it was a sort of... My dad often made up names for everything, often in a kind of slightly Jewish but slightly Welsh way. That That's who he was, a Jewish Welsh person. And, uh, and the cat used to purr a lot. And he used to pick her up and say, are you fomfering? Which is a kind of onomatopoeic word for purring, I guess. Is that, is that Welsh or Yiddish? Uh, it's or... both. I think it's a bit of both. Uh, <laughs> although when she had a child, when Fomf had a child, he named the child Ben Finfling Fomf, which is definitely Yiddish. Um, but um, anyway... The, I think from a very early age, like, if I was to psychoanalyze, I would say my dad in particular was not an emotional man. My dad was not a loving, you know, affectionate dad. He was mainly cross, mainly angry. I remember when the phone, phone rang in my house when I was young, my dad would always go, oh, fuck it out. He would always just be <laughs> furious that the phone had rung. No, sense. <laughs> no sense that it might be, you know, a positive thing, just always angry. And I about the one thing, that would show any kind of softness, not his children, with my dad, was the cat. You know, that's the one place where I would see my dad being a sort of sweet, affectionate, physical man because he would pick the cat up and, you know, all stroke it and be really nice to it. And I think that's where I developed this kind of idea that cats are beautiful. I mean, incredibly kind of beautiful and objects of affection. And that that has stuck with me. Uh, I I think I then started to transfer quite a lot of probably the affection that I probably should have felt for my parents to the cat. And throughout my life, even when I was at university, I took in a street cat in the you know, well before a street cat named Bob. I had a cat called Jezebel who I took in in my halls of residence, and they used to somehow find food for illegally. It would have been you know uh, people would have got cross about it if they'd known. Um, and I've always just always had cats and always felt I can't really call a house a home without a cat. And you're probably handing this on to your children as a... Oh, totally, yes. My children, certainly my daughter particularly, is very obsessed with cats. But within that, the cat that we have now, the mum, who I referred to earlier, is called Pip. And, and here's another interesting thing I think about cats is Pip is very, very obsessed with Dolly. Your daughter. Yeah, Dolly's my daughter. Uh, Pip... Pip loves dolly she sort of hates me although that depends slightly on where we are in the house she sort of likes me upstairs but hates me downstairs um which <laughs> is true i'm a much nicer person upstairs but but she loves dolly whatever and uh, and acts like a dog around her is like unbelievably affectionate all the rest of it but what, what i'm interested in again is i think people imagine people who don't like cats imagine that cats are very sort of monotonous in terms of their personality they're just all very high flown and standoffish or whatever but actually i've had a, a lot of cats and within a small palette of expression and kind of behavior they've all been very distinct characters i mean really distinct characters uh, and i still think about ones that i have had in the past i recently about three years ago had to put down for the first time it was kind of a weird thing like i've had all these cats i've never actually had to put one down they've either died of natural causes or they've disappeared or sadly been run over or whatever monkey who was a cat i had for 20 years and did a weird thing which was when i was first going out with morwenna banks who is now my wife i gave her a cat uh which she she'd never had a cat before and clearly it was me it's like a stalky thing to do because it's sort of saying right we're going to be together for a long time oh yes isn't it cats have it, a deep cat psychological significance for you david this is this is emerging can I just bring it back to the mundane? Because we mustn't spend too much long, uh, too much time on yak cats. But just at the mundane level, can I just put as an interest of you know balance? Cats can also be tiresome things. They scratch your furniture. They kill uh, blue tits. They bring half alive mice into the house and uh, torture them to death in front of you. Uh, sometimes they dispose of their waste materials and in inconvenient ways. Do any of those things ever get to you and make you say? I don't know why I like cats so much. Get out of my life, just as a you know expression. No, 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 never. Um, I, I, I feel that they they're the run up for me to children because children have got lots and lots of negative things. <laughs> but when when you have them, you accept that they do almost all of those things you describe. Certainly, as regards waste products. Admittedly, none of my children have tortured mice, and if they did, I would think shit. I've given birth to Ted Bundy, but <laughs> I none of them have done that. But they are, you know, you'll know this. 
often very tiresome children. <laughs> and yet you don't think, I wish I never had them. You sort of accept that as part and parcel of the deal. And I think I felt that with cats. I would say, upsetting whoever's listening to this who may be a dog person, that on the rare occasions when I've had to look after a dog, that's what I felt about dogs. So, for example, I was once just in this house and the, someone who was living in the opposite house had three Labrador puppies. They were so sweet, so lovely, and brought them over for me to play with and my kids who, who loved it. Within 10 minutes, I just thought, go away. Take these terrible things <laughs> that are just over me all the time and in my face away. Uh, so I feel I would feel that about dogs. So cats, that's my first wonder. People say that you choose a dog, but the cat chooses you. And people say that cats are aloof. Well, I don't know about that. All I know is that the bee, our beloved cat, was much more than a pet. He was a friend. We loved him dearly. And, you know, I think he loved us dearly, too. The second on the list that I've got that you've sent over is Sour Sweets. And this is not, I wouldn't say it's a surprise, but it's certainly not one. I wasn't expecting you to put Sour Sweets (laughs) on your list of wonders of the world. Now, are you talking about Maynard Sours or that sort of thing? Yes, I'm talking about sweets, as in confectionery, that is not just sweet, but also sour. And uh, when I was a kid, oh, God, I've gone back to it again. Uh, I am a... Uh, I used to, there was a news agent near Dollis Hill Station, near where I lived. And uh, if I had five pence, I would go in there and ask for these apple drops that in my mind, even though I have had apple drops since that don't match up to this, were extremely sour. And uh, I, I don't know whether this is correct or not, but I believe that some people have a palate that likes sour, that like five to 10% of people even though sour is kind of a negative word, that actually some people really like sour. And it may interest you to know that I once contacted Innocent, the drinks people. Uh, I contacted them and said, have you not thought about doing a range of sour drinks? So, you know, because there are, in confectionery, there is, (laughs) this is like a pitch I'm doing now, something like 10% (laughs) of the confectionery market is things called things like, toxic sour atom bomb uh, sound really horrible but in fact they are these they pride themselves brand themselves on being as sour as possible and i thought well if they could do it in sweets they should be able to do it in drinks and maybe the way to do the drinks is to be a bit less toxic atom bomb sour and a bit more sort of nice sour so i, I you could do sour you could do sour apple drink or yeah, sour apple sour orange sour whatever and uh, i said i even you know what clive I even had a way of doing it, which was add lemon juice. <laughs> add lemon juice to your orange juice uh, or to your apple juice, and that'll make it sour. And I, I do do this at home all the time. I now will I will buy cloudy lemonade from Sainsbury's. It will be far too sweet because those things are far too sweet, and I do think there has been a creeping up of the amount of sugar and sweetness in you know processed food. And I'll pour lemon juice into it, and that will make it incredibly nicer and less horribly sickly sweet but what i think i want at the heart of this uh, and still occasionally buy as a man in his 50s which is odd is actual confectionery i have one over there called uh, i think it's called something breakers ice breakers and they are sour sweets uh, and they are just sweets which they've added probably very bad chemicals to that uh, are also sour but in my book the death of eli gold which is my last adult book before i switched to writing um uh, children's book. Yes, a, a fine book. I think there's, one of three pa- there's three pages. I could go and read some of it now about sour sweets, about the, the guy, clearly in this case, a version of me, uh, Harvey, arriving at New York airport and not being able to think straight unless he gets some sour sweets. He treats them essentially like heroin. Uh, and that there's a sort of balance to the world that comes to him in the balance of sour and sweet that he gets while sucking on a sour sweet. How did you get on? You said you wrote to Innocent and you've met, perhaps yeah. considered writing to Haribo and Maynard, and they're all probably owned by the same company now. But uh, I found uh, in my suggestions that I've ever made to commercial, yeah. they're not interested. They no. don't want to have suggestions made. Well, I actually, I, I mean, this is a bit of a mental suggestion. I mean, I've, I have really suggested, I went, I spoke to someone from Unilever uh, <laughs> about this once because they make all sorts of sweets. Uh, and then, then I wrote to someone and clearly the bloke at innocent who got this email 
At some level, he's thinking, this is funny. David Patil's <laughs> written to me about some weird idea about sweets. So he gave it the time of day for that reason. I got quite a lot of emails back from him. But the problem is, I think, at the end of the day, it's not really an idea. Well, it's hard to know how I can – it's not something I can patent, really. It's really a branding idea. And if I worked in the confectionery stroke fruits drinks you know, market – I think I'd be quite proud of going to my CEO and saying, look, I've got a whole idea for a whole new range, a whole new brand. But as somebody who isn't that, it's quite hard to, for it to land on their email tray with like, this is an amazing idea. Yes. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't feel... I once spent some time with an inventor, not not of sour sweets, but uh, you know, invented lots of interesting engineering things, made a lot of money out of it. And he explained to me one of the principal of these things, he's, he had another idea. He said, well, not, it's not going to happen. He's too old. Uh, he said, well, but the thing is, there's two things, as with all things in life. There's the inventing it, the idea, and then there's the doing it. And if you don't do it, you have to do it yourself. Start the company, manufacture. That's the only way to do it. Because the best you're going to get, you'll give your idea away. You're certainly not convince anybody else to do your idea. Yes, well, I think someone said that to me. I think what you need to do is, is run a stall. You need to actually make it yourself using fruit juice and then go and run a stall. And at that point, I thought, yeah, I'm I'm okay. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm not going to do that, am I? Because that sounds really hard work and cold. Well, w- without wanting to track back into your childhood get, uh, or uh, again, because I think we'll be returning to that. But uh, I think both your parents, uh, at, for at different stages of life, didn't sell sweets but sold different things on stall. So you might mm, uh, have been, you know, call upon some experience there if you were <laughs> observing what yeah. they were doing and absorbing any of it but perhaps you were yeah, ignoring that's it true well my dad sold dinky toys my dad was made redundant from unilever uh he was made redundant from unilever in his 40s and eventually couldn't get another job uh, as a scientist which is what he was trained to do uh, and so sold dinky toys which was his hobby in gray's antique market and then opposite him my mum uh, set up a stall selling golf memorabilia, which anyone who has followed my career closely, she only did because she was having an affair with a golfing memorabilia salesman, and that had made her obsessed with golf. So some would say that was a bit of a difficult thing for my dad to have to face every day at work, but they made it, you know, function somehow. Good morning. Good morning. Um, can I trouble you for a, a quarter pound of licorice also? Trouble me, sir? Trouble me? Nothing. It's too much trouble in this shop, sir. Uh, only thing is, I don't, uh, I don't like the pink ones. Oh, <laughs> And I don't like the blue ones. You don't like the blue ones? No. I see, sir. I can take out the blue ones, yep. shall we, sir? That's it. Not, uh, not the black and white ones either, please. I don't want the black. You don't want the black and white ones. No, well, that only leaves the orange ones, I'm afraid, sir. Yes, but I only like the orange. Oh, ones. you only like the orange. Well, I'll tell you what we we'll do. Then we we'll tip all out of the counter, sir. Well, we're going to come back to your father and family later. But it's interesting that even Sour Sweets has led us back there. Can you let us know your third wonder, please, David? So my third one, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is just a thing that I'm fascinated by, which is goose pimples, uh, particularly the fact that they come up on your flesh uh, when you listen to music or sometimes a line of poetry or even just when you're watching a film and something sad uh, happens. Uh you get this weird physical reaction. There's a, there's a name for it. Uh, that's ASMR. Are you familiar with the th- stuff that happens with ASMR now? Is that the thing? But isn't that the thing on the internet where people whisper in your ear? Yes, it's it's autonomous sensory meridian response. And I was just raising that because I'm not sure if it's the same thing or just a related thing. People now induce goose pimple or that sort of feeling by looking at people wrapping packaging or stroking cloth or even doing ironing which is you know uh, so uh, would you say that's the same thing or just as a related well i've tried that i've tried the asm what's it was it ASMR? asmr yeah yeah i've listened to some with headphones some of those videos and uh some of it involve quite attractive women whispering in your ear uh which is quite a nice thing but not that doesn't do that much for me and then they do tend to do things like here's a brush and i'm going to brush it near your ear uh, or i didn't know about ironing but yeah sort of very sort of little mundane tasks um i that doesn't particularly uh, work for me but i can see how it might it feels to me like that is inducing it in a slightly contrived way and what is wonderful about the goose pimple response is that it is not contrived. It happens spontaneously. You know, often 
as I get older, so I haven't really thought about this, but often as I get older, it's linked with nostalgia, I think. Um, so something that calls to mind something very to do with my childhood or something that I remember and have always... So, for example, right, uh, when I was a teenager, I um, thought I liked art films uh, very much, and I think The Draftsman's Contract by Peter Greeno was my favourite film. I was that much of a... Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I... I don't know if you can use that word. Uh, anyway, uh, and I went in a kind of sneery way with some student friends to see E.T. Uh, and I remember thinking at the time, oh, this will be rubbish, but, you know, we could laugh about it. And I absolutely, I, I've never been so moved by a film in my life. I still don't think I've been so moved by a film in my life. Uh, it really, it sort of burst a dam in my soul about how a film like that, a sort of film that tries to emotionally, emotionally manipulate you but does it so skillfully, just is so moving. Anyway, at the end of that film, as you may or may not remember, there's a bit where uh, E.T. has to leave. Sorry, spoiler alert for anyone else it. <laughs> E.T. has to leave to go home, and he says to Elliot, the child who he's become friendly with and who they've had these many adventures with, uh, Elliot says he doesn't want him to go, and E.T. raises his finger to Elliot's forehead and says, I'll be right here. And as I'm saying it, I can feel goose pimples rising on my flesh. And uh, that is partly because I think the thing that induces goose pimples most often in me is a kind of happy, sad thing like something that is half happy, half sad, but also because it's now mixed up with my memories of watching E.T. when I was young. Uh, and the bringing of that back and how I felt at the time creates its own kind of goose pimple response. And 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 you, your realisation at that time that however much you like the Draftsman con- uh, contract, you're, uh, it's not going to have the same impact on the world as E.T. And, uh, you know, you'd have to seek it out now to watch it where people have could have watched E.T. dozens of times just by it cropping up on the telly over, over all that time. Yeah. I mean, it's often, uh, I mean, I've got quite a hefty, although I hope hopefully economic uh, liking for sentimentality, it turns out, um, when it's kind of like in those films, like, for example, there's a moment in um, Edward Scissorhands uh, where at the end of Edward Scissorhands, it's revealed again, spoiler alert, uh, that the... Um, we know the Reiner girl figure is telling this story about the incredible Edward Scissorhands character to her granddaughter, right? And the granddaughter says, uh, do you ever see him again? Uh, and uh, he, she, she says, only when it snows. And then she says, sometimes you can still see me dancing in it. And it cuts to her young dancing in the snow. And I was in tears when that when I saw that. And by then, I was completely committed to like, oh, I like these kind of films, these sort of fantasy sort of uh, films with sentimental moments. But I watched that film with Dennis Leary, who you, you will know. Oh, yes. He's a very hard-bitten yes. American comedian. Yes. Yeah. And I came out, and I remember Dennis saying, ah, oh, that was shit. That was shit. Especially that line, you can still see me dancing in it. That was fucking <laughs> terrible. And I had to pretend that I didn't like it. But in fact, I was, I, I was goose-pimpling all over. Let's, let's, let's continue in that theme, perhaps, with your fourth, your fourth wonder. Oh, yeah. Okay, so this is, uh, I guess it's in a way it's sentimental, but it's also an actual wonder, I think. So my father has dementia. Uh, he now has very advanced dementia. He doesn't know who I am. I mean, he sort of recognises that I'm someone familiar in, to him, uh, but he wouldn't know what my name is. He would be confused, I mean, and he's confused sometimes when I say I'm your son because I think he thinks, but you're 56 or whatever you are, you're an old man. And I think because my dad isn't looking at himself in the mirror, I think he thinks he's about, I know he does, he thinks he's about 27. Uh, He's in fact 86. Uh, And so he's got advanced dementia. And people who do know my work will know that was originally diagnosed as Pick's disease, which is a frontal lobe dementia that causes the symptoms include things like 
swearing and obscenity and disinhibition and laziness and uh, anger. And uh, when the neurologist first told me that list of symptoms, I said, sorry, does he have a disease or have you just met him? Because my dad was always <laughs> exactly like that. So it was quite hard to know that he had it, except he became very extreme in his behaviours. He's not really like that anymore. He still occasionally is very truculent, but most of the time he's just very quiet. And yet my dad did biochemistry uh, for his PhD. That's when he worked for Unilever, he was working in a laboratory. Um, And if you say to my dad, what's the chemical symbol for salt, for sodium chloride, he will say NaCl. Uh, if you say, what's the chemical symbol for lead? He will say PB. Uh, he, I gave him the other day his PhD because I found it in his house. I mean, I can't even tell you, Clive, his PhD is something like on the relationship between fluoride hydrocarbons and gaseous blah, blah. I mean, it's some incredibly complex reaction. I can't read more than two sentences without thinking, right, I haven't understood. My dad was devouring it, except he didn't know it was by him. My dad is reading this incredibly difficult book. And then I said, who who wrote that? And he said, I don't know. I've just started it. <laughs> He's like five pages in. right? And I said, well, if you look here, and then I, he would look down and he said, oh, it's by me. And that I felt a bit bad about that because I thought, oh, that I don't like to confuse him. And he clearly was confused by that, although he will forget about it five seconds later. But that was much more confusing for him than the incredibly confusing chemical stuff in the book. So, so it's the fact that he can remember all that learning, that learning is still within him, even though he can't remember that you must have grown up to be a, um, a middle-aged or old man by now and is not still... Well, he, doesn't, he can't remember his son. He can't remember either of any of his sons. He can't remember something that, you know, a lot of stuff. I mean, including a lot of his long-term memory is gone. People talk about dementia, meaning that, you know, oh, you can't remember the immediate stuff. But to be honest with you, like my dad lived in America for a bit, and I asked him about that. He couldn't remember living in America. Uh, but he can remember, yeah, a lot of chemical and scientific things. I mean, interestingly, we talked about chess earlier. I, about two years ago, I played him at chess. And as long as he was focused on the board and didn't look elsewhere and forget that he was playing chess, he was able to sort of make the next move. The other thing he can remember, if any, I did a, a documentary about my dad for Channel 4. And there was, a, I think, a very moving bit at the end of that where um, – because he gets worse, actually, throughout that documentary. And there's a bit at the end of that where um, what we're trying to get my dad to do, me and my brother, is some of his regular insults. Because my dad, the other thing he can remember are his regular insults. So still, when you leave my dad, if you say, I'm off, he will say, you've been off for years. And it's it's really comforting that he can still abuse you in this way. And we're sitting in a pub with him in that documentary, and we're sort of nudging him to do something like that, me and my brother Ivor. Uh, and then eventually I say, have you got a match? And he says, yes, your face and my ass." And it's unbelievably moving because <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, God, he's still in there. Um, so basically what I'm talking about is the wonder of, shards of memory still being in there in a man without memory well that's fascinating i i i, I suppose we can all slightly slightly relate without having necessarily dementia that it, it is strange that you you can remember things from a long time ago even though you can't remember where you put your car keys but this is this is obviously beyond that you said it was diagnosed as, as pix disease has it moved on to a different diagnosis now is that uh it hasn't got an official other diagnosis, but Pick's disease is a frontal lobe dementia, which has got mainly uh, behavioural issues. I mean, obviously, it does involve memory loss as well. But most people think of Pick's disease as, you know, antisocial behaviour issues. Uh, and uh, whatever is happening in my dad's brain, he doesn't do much of that anymore. He's mainly just now sits in a chair and doesn't say much. So I don't think he'd get that diagnosis now. The striking thing that relates to you in this, uh, David, is that you, uh, you did a stage show, a uh, highly successful stage show, about your father uh, and his con- condition and his background and your mother and the the long-term affair that she had. And, you know, it was an entertaining, it was an interesting show for the audience, but uh, not everybody would choose to uh, be quite so open about the uh, the relationships and the, well, let's say, just call them troubles of... Um, of their parents and family life. Uh, uh, 
Are you just super comfortable about talking about this sort of thing? Yeah, I, I am. Uh, I mean, I am, uh, and I think possibly too comfortable at some level. My tendency, I think Nora Ephron said uh, that her mother had always said to her, everything is copy. Uh, and uh, Nora Ephron, in her work, talks about sometimes learning that maybe some things aren't copy because she felt she used too much of her own family material in her work. And my sense is that I will talk about, I want to talk about almost anything that happens to me, uh, no matter how it might seem uncomfortable. For me, it's made made more comfortable, however uncomfortable it is, in the process of talking about it on stage or whatever. But with my parents in that show, which is called My Family Not the Sitcom, there was some very specific stuff going on, which was I felt that both of them, in my by my mother's death and by my father's dementia, were being erased as people. That I was at my mother's funeral and, and listening to people tell say what a wonderful woman she was, and thinking, well, you don't you didn't know her, and saying she was wonderful is just what everyone says when people die. So if I want to have my mother in any way remembered as a real person, you have to talk about her in three hundred sixty degrees and. One of the biggest, biggest things in my mother's life was that she was in love with this golfing memorabilia salesman and transformed that life over to golf. And the thing is, if you talk about her like that, what happens is she comes alive. However much some people might say, oh, you're being negative about her. I don't recognize that. I just think I'm being true about her in a very, very specific way. And what that makes her is alive, at least in the moment on stage. But some some people might have, I'm not, I'm not really pressing you on this. It's just it's just interesting. Some people might have chosen to write a novel in which you create a fictional character with some of these characteristics, or a play, uh, and and both of those things, in effect, you've done. Uh, so you, you could have chosen a different route rather than saying this was what actually happened to my mother, or what this is what she did. You could have had this character called you know something different. Well, that's true. Well, actually, in Time for Bed, my first novel, both my parents do turn up uh, as uh, slightly different characters uh, and it really that actually really pissed my mother off um, that particular book she told my brother she thought it was shit um, so I don't I, whereas actually this more mature work my family not the sitcom even though she's dead I know absolutely my mum would have loved that piece of work because well I mean the the, the here's a sentimental thing again but uh, when I first did that show the premiere which was at the chocolate factory in London um, there were lots of critics in the audience and I used to do a Q&A at the end of that show and I came on and all these critics had their hands up and uh, there were important people in the room uh, but I decided no I'm going to speak first of all even though he didn't have his hand up to my older brother who I've mentioned already Ivor who was sitting there and he had said to me are you sure you should be doing this uh, like three months before uh, and I said yeah and he said okay well I'll just have to trust you on it um, and I said Ivor what did you think and he said I loved it and then he said I loved it because it felt like she was in the room. Uh, and that was my purpose, I guess. My purpose was to make her a real person again. Um, and so it comes from a place of love. Uh, and once you do that, I think you can sort of talk about anything. David Badil's 82-year-old father, Colin, suffers from Pick's disease, a rare type of dementia which can make sufferers rude or impulsive. All right, I'm going to sit here, Colin. Is it nice to see David? What am I supposed to do, smile? <laughs> I do get a lot of abuse, but then so does everyone. You're a total tit. So what do you two normally do when you hang out together? This. We sit around, he, he abuses me. The film The Trouble With Dad focuses on the relationship between Badil, his brother Ivor and their father. What are you doing? Shaving your beard. Shaving your beard. That's all we want. Doesn't hurt. Doesn't hurt. Oh, lovely. Look at that. Do this show now. That's it. That's it. It's done. What's the customer? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This week at Sukarnov. On the Luke and Pete show, Luke introduced me to some bizarre animal warfare. In the 70s, there was a... <laughs> I can't remember to say this, but I promise you it's true. There was a war, an actual war, between rival chimpanzee clans that went on for over four years. <laughs> Meanwhile, on Abroad in Japan, Chris is facing off against a natural disaster. So the same day that I'd run out of fuel, right, I was like, well, I made it in one piece. Thank you, God. And then, and then, like, five hours later, the worst earthquake I've ever experienced. It was a 15-storey building shaking from side to side. It went on so long, I was like, this hotel's coming down, and I don't want to be in it when it does. Listen to Abroad in Japan and the Luke and Pete Show, available on your favourite podcast player. All that and a whole lot more at Sukarnov. So, David, thus far we've had cats, sour sweets, goose pimples, and your dad's incredible memory. So what's next? Well, the next one relates to being on stage, so it sort of follows, and it's the sound of a big laugh in response to a new bit of material. Uh, and I mentioned it again, like, as I say, I did write all these down uh, at a specific moment, so there will be a specific thing that happened quite recently that made me think of this, and it is, I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a documentary about the Comedy Store the L.A. Comedy Store, uh, on Sky Documentaries or something. I haven't seen it, but uh, I'm obviously familiar with the, the place. Yeah, yeah. well, there's a, guy, there's a five-part documentary by a guy called Mike Binder. It's, it's a good documentary. But there's one bit where all the comedians in a montage talk about this thing, which I, I'd never really completely thought about before, which is that there is a very specific joy that comes with trying out a new bit of material and it working. And then and they all talk about it. And then one woman says something very true. She says, and to be honest with you, every time you do it after that, it's not as good. <laughs> it's diminishing returns every time you do it after that. Once you know it works, it's not as exciting. Uh, and that is definitely true. And, they, uh, you know, if – I mean, I'm someone who uh, – you know, as I grow older, particularly, uh, even though I've, you know, done three big shows in the last few years, whatever, I don't know how much longer I'm going to carry on performing because performing is, I don't know how you might feel about it, but live performing can sometimes feel like, oh, it's kind of a young man's game <laughs> um, and it's kind of hard work and certainly touring and all the rest of it. And when I was doing My Family Not the Sitcom, which was a very, you know, emotional show and very kind of important in, to me in terms of what it was talking about, I got very anxious about it not being new anymore to me. I mean, so thinking like, okay, this is now quite successful. I'm doing it. I'm doing two West End runs. I'm doing it in Australia, wherever else I'm doing it. And I don't know if it feels new to me anymore. Um, but so I, what I mean then is I'm no longer feeling emotionally connected as I was before because it feels like I'm just rehearsing something. At the same time, I'm also saying, I'm not getting that moment, that moment where I'm just trying out a new bit and it's really working. Um, and I don't know if non-comedians know about that, so I sort of threw it in as just as something that... It is that, It is interesting. I mean, in relation to your particular show, when it is so personal, it's about your life, I think that's a particular thing where in your 500th performance and your eyes are welling up when we're calling your, your mother is going to be different. Uh, for when you've just, I mean, I would say that I, I think I'm capable of thinking if you do a joke and it goes really well and you and you think, oh, that's great. Oh, but it just relates to the funny way the stage is set up and the man coming in at that moment. That's just for now. <laughs> I'm not, 
I'm going to have to hope something like that happens at another performance. But when you'd make a joke and you think, oh, that's good. That's, that's good. That could, that could do again. Yes. No, that's true. That's true. I mean, but that's interesting, isn't it? Because well, that might be the equal and opposite emotion that I'm expressing. Ooh, uh, that's good. No, but that's, but you're right though, because the crack, as it were, the sort of like addictive quality of doing a joke that works is as a working comedian based on the fact that, oh, I'll be able to do that again now and again, and that's in the bank. At the same time, you know that the 500th time you tell it, you're thinking, oh, God, am I doing this joke still? Yeah. The jokes you do, you, you aren't even thinking about it because you're trying to think of the next bit, and but you're you're sort of just uh, on autopilot t- telling two or three that just, oh, I know I do. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, oh, yes, I've remembered now the topical joke I was trying to remember. My I found... Uh, and I found before when I've done jokes or or a show that be going a long time, and you do get a sense of like, oh god, I can't keep doing this material. What you tend to do is slightly self sabotage in a way of trying to find a new way of doing it. So even though you know this joke works, if I say it like this with the stress here and the gap here, or whatever, you end up doing it wrong because you think like I've just got to find a new way of saying it. Um, but I think the wonder thing, to come back to that, it was, you know, I think people often don't understand who, you know, off, I still get people saying to me, uh, you know, why do you, why does one want to be a stand-up? You know, isn't it the most terrifying thing? And it is, it can be, uh, but that there is a real reward and incredible. There's probably a huge dopamine, actual neurological reward. Someone should wire a stand-up up at a new material night because I think there is a real dopamine reward when you hear the laugh, particularly the first time you do a new joke. One of the things you do a lot of, and that, again, you formed it into a show, is everything becomes a show in the end, is argue with people on the internet, on Twitter. And you've uh, and you've got the trolls, as they, you, know, you, you call them, they, uh, well, people call them, uh, people who are rude about you, you're just kind of rude back or funny back, yeah. and, you've, and you've made a whole show out of that. Now, f- two questions I'd like to ask you about, if I may, is that how do you find time? I may have asked you this before, but I'm going to ask yeah, you. Yeah, you have. Well, how do you find time to be on Twitter so much, given that you're writing novels, writing children's books, preparing shows? And, and uh, yeah, that's the first question. So, how, hey, how, how do you find the time? Well, I think I would write more. <laughs> uh, I would build empires uh, if I wasn't uh, doing being distracted by the internet. I do think it's a massive distraction uh, I, for a thousand reasons. Um, I think, you know, someone said that, uh, I think it was Dave Gorman or someone, said uh, that there are distractions all the time when you look out of the window. But at least when you look out the window, there's just some trees. Now the window that you look into, you know, there's all of life and all of all things are there and there's so many things to get involved in. Uh, so I... Well, of all those things you can get involved in, why are you looking at somebody who said, I can't sound that David Baddiel or, you know, or ruder than that, obviously, uh, and, and you want to reply to them? Well, in terms of the trolls, I, I, I don't actually do it as much as I used to, uh, but I did it a lot at the start because it seemed to me that they were hecklers. Uh, it seemed to me that, you know, I'd done a joke or whatever, uh, and out of nothing, a stranger from the darkness was slagging me off. And my natural response as a comedian would be to try and make that funny, to try and, you know, use what they said in a kind of, right, I'm going to build on this. I'm going to not reject it. I'm not going to get angry or any of the things that are wrong when you're dealing with a heckler. I'm going to sort of like accept what they've said and then turn it around against them. Uh, and I just did that and it started to really work for me as, you know, because obviously there is an audience. It really works as a corollary. When you put down a heckler, the rest of the audience enjoy it and laugh at the heckler. On Twitter, I would basically say something to one of these people which made fun of them and then I would get loads of likes from the rest of the audience, as it were, and that would be, that was a way of just creating, you know, a brand, I suppose, one of a better word for me on Twitter. Now, I don't do it as much as I used to, uh, partly because uh, there are just too many trolls and I no longer believe a lot of them are real people. I think a lot of them are state-sponsored sort of troll farm people. Um, really? Yeah, well, d- definitely there are, I mean, not specifically at me, but if I, you know, for example, my brother did a joke the other day which involved talking about how, you know, Christians shouldn't be so upset about Christmas. They could just choose some alternative festivals like Hanukkah or whatever. And he got loads of anti-Semitism, right? And I made a joke. I chose, I 
screenshotted one of them and made a joke about it. But I, someone said to me afterwards, oh, she seems like a nice person because it was someone called Ashling. And I said, no, I think he seems like he's a state-sponsored troll farm worker because he will be. It'll be some sock puppet working in some basement somewhere spreading anti-Semitism for some weird political reason. Uh, and that's less fun for me. It's less fun than, than it being a real person who really hates me uh, for, for real reasons. Actually, I was talking about the thing is that um, I get mistaken for lots of other people on TV, as well as having lots of lookalikes. Get mistaken for lots of other people on TV, notably Ben Elton, which pisses me off a bit. But uh, on the tour, right, when we were in Cardiff, we got a free meal from a bloke who ran an Italian restaurant because he thought I was fucking Steve Wright. <laughs> eh? Oh, well, that's a hit and run heckle, was it? Like, fuck off. Your next wonder is uh, something which uh, I well I'll name it because I I've I've looked it up but Oculus Quest is your next thing uh, which I, until I looked it up I'd assume would be a character from Harry Potter or something <laughs> but uh, t- tell me what o- Oculus Quest is Oculus Quest is uh, a um, VR system a virtual reality system and I'm specifically it's a pair of goggles. Uh, that I wear, uh, not just me, lots of people wear them. Uh, I mean, I think possibly being 56 and wearing them looks more ridiculous than being younger and wear- wearing them. Uh, but when you put them on, uh, you can, and it's sort of very irrelevant for this particular um, podcast because I sometimes go in my Oculus Quest, obviously I haven't gone anywhere, but i using the metaphor go to the pyramids or to uh, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, if they exist, uh, or, I don't know, to uh, Everest. Um, I And you can go in these things. There's a particular, um, I can't remember what it's called now, Pano something, like on YouTube, there's a VR Pano channel called something Pano, which in extreme high definition and 360 degrees, will take you on a helicopter to, you know, um, an iced over 400-mile river in China. Uh, and the first time I did this, I mean, actually, interesting, there's a bit of a diminishing returns like we've talked about uh, before with this now, so I'm less amazed by it than I was. But the first time I did it, I had a massive goose pimple reaction. Uh, I remember, you know, going to the Statue of Jesus in Rio in a way that, by the way, if you actually went there, would be quite hard because it's a drone shot. So you're flying around the Statue of Christ in Rio in a way that you can see people at the base of the statue, but you yourself are, you know, happily like getting a much better view than they are, even though you're even though you're in you're in North London. So, this, so let me just get so I understood this. So, so they've got presumably they filmed it using a drone or similar. But you, it's a point of view shot from that point of view. So you feel you're there. Does it? Do you feel as though you're floating, or is it just you're getting a good view? Or- yeah, I mean, not all. Sometimes, you know, you're walking around or uh, in New York, or sometimes you're by the sea or whatever. Uh, but these ones, uh, the pano ones, tend to be drone shots, and you feel that your eyes are the eyes of the drone. So you just feel like you're flying very close to. The, whatever it might be, and I, I mean, I literally, don't, I mean, they'll get, they'll improve, and in fact, I've got the new one, which is slightly better than the old one, but I, without doubt, that there, it doesn't feel very. I, mean, I haven't been to the Statue of Christ at Rio, so perhaps what I'm seeing is complete nonsense. But it feels to me, I sometimes do go to places I have been actually. I sometimes think, oh right, well, I was in China. I did a, I did a, a documentary in China. I'll see if they've got Xi'an, and you, yeah, they have, and so, and so that helps because you think, like, yeah, well, it really is like this, um, and it's a, it's a wonder. It's odd. It's in a way, it's not a wonder because it's just you know a very advanced form of television, essentially of immersive television. And I guess that's something that you might expect would happen with the way that technology has advanced. The the wonder is just when you put it on, 
<laughs> this is very banal. You really think you're there, Clive? <laughs> I'm not saying very original, anything very original here about VR, but it really does feel like it. And I mean, I guess with the pandemic, a tiny part of me, although I'm not sure this is really true, but a tiny part of me thought, well, I'm fine because I've got my Oculus Quest and I can go anywhere. And it feels a little bit melancholy maybe to say that of like okay so actual travel is not going to happen anymore and going anywhere proper is not going to happen anymore surely it's a bit pathetic to have this these goggles but actually when you put them on it doesn't feel like that it feels amazing i mean this feels just like an advert for oculus quest no uh, well i i would suggest it perhaps i'm I'm probably thinking to just say count our blessings or the banal but if you just look back let's say 100 years or 150 years before then if you wanted to hear a piece of music, you had to go and find the musician or bring the musician to you. Now you can hear any piece of music uh, you've ever thought about, it, and in, in, it took record players, and then it's now it's in a it's in your phone. Uh, t- as you mentioned, television. There was a time we had no, you know, before the Second World War, there wasn't such a thing as television, and now you've got three D, four D, super HD telly you can watch. You, you, Oculus Quest is just the next thing, and you you can be. It's a wonder at the moment. In twenty years' time, it won't be a wonder because everybody will have this, and there'll be perhaps another wonder that. Yeah, I mean, it's know, quite hard. Teleports you in some way. Yeah, maybe it's quite hard to know because actually, your point is right. Like with music, I've often felt that Spotify has sort of ruined music because you know the process whereby you had to get out a vinyl thing or whatever, even a CD, and find the track that you liked meant that you rationed your own exposure to these songs. Now, I am frankly bored of songs that I would thought, I think 20 years ago, I thought I'd never be bored of because I can hear them too easily. And I've ended up sort of swimming around in this sort of mass of music thinking I don't even know what I like anymore. And that possibly, I've already mentioned diminishing returns, might happen with the Oculus Quest. I might be thinking this is really, really like being at the pyramids and I'm bored of being at the pyramids now. <laughs> you know, I'm bored of being at the wonders of the world because the Oculus Quest has taken me there too easily. Maybe part of the wonders of the world is it's a bit of an effort to get there. You have to buy a ticket, you have to travel for seven hours, you have to say to a guide, look, can I get there? And they're like, well, it's quite difficult, all that stuff. And then you feel relieved and thrilled that you've got there, whereas the bloody quest gets you there straight away. So it might be the opposite of a wonder of the world. Now, by looking through that window, you're able to see into the world of the computer. And by wearing the helmet, you're able to see it in 3D. So down there, there's the television I was talking about, with my glass on the top. Move around, and up comes my flash new table. There it is. So everything is in the room just where I said it was. That's your sixth wonder. Your seventh wonder... Uh, you said you've gone for small or banal or particular things, but your seventh wonder opens it out a bit. Yeah, well, my seventh wonder is very small. Uh, I mean, it's the smallest thing imaginable, which is quantum physics. Uh, so uh, I became obsessed with quantum physics, and this is obviously, again, to do with my dad, I think, because when I was a kid, when I was a well, my dad was obsessed with science. He used to make us learn the periodic tables, in fact, which is interesting. It does what I said earlier about him still knowing the chemical symbol for lead or whatever. He used to do these flashcards with, you know, they'd have an element on them and it would have every information about the element and we would have to remember it or whatever. Uh, and he was obsessed with science. And then when I was about 16, with quite a lot of trepidation, I said to my dad, um, look, I'm going to do arts subjects for A-level. I'm going to do history and English and whatever. Uh, And he said, it's a waste of a brain, uh, which is not good parenting. Um, And also (laughs) ironic because, of course, he's now uh, got a wasted brain, Uh, but which feels harsh, but is true. Uh, So I... That's just come with age, though. He didn't waste his brain while he had his brain. Yeah, he didn't mean to waste his brain. Uh, But um, my point is that I think there's been a return of, you know, my whatever it was, my reaction to my dad's uh, attempt to make me a scientist in my sort of late 40s and 50s, which is I have become, I don't know if you feel this anyway, I feel as someone who works in the arts, I always feel a tiny part of me that thinks, yeah, but obviously real cerebral work, real braininess happens in the sciences. You know, all this sort of flim flam that we, that we do and, you know, literature and blah, it's great, but people who are really clever... 
they're scientists. Um, and I sort of do believe that. And then what I did was start reading an awful lot of lay books by people like Brian Cox about physics. And the thing about them is what I find when I read them is I think, God, this is incredible. And I haven't quite understood it. I, I've, I've nearly understood it, but I appeared not to have understood it. Uh, although uh, Richard Feynman, uh, the great physicist, said the thing about quantum physics is if you think you've understood it, you haven't understood it. Um, so let me just tell you, in terms of the wondrousness, uh, did you see? Did you, did you see God's Dice? I've read it. That's almost the only one of your shows I haven't seen. Uh, so you can you can tell me anything about it, and I'll say really that's uh, that's very good. Okay. okay. So in God's Dice, it opens with uh, the physicist, a lecturer, uh, who was played by Alan Davis in the production, uh, talking to a class, and then a, a woman, a young woman, comes down. He's in the class who he's never met before. Comes down and says she's got a question for him, and she's a Christian, and the question involves. Um, uh, well, okay, this is very complicated, but it involves the fact that if you pair two electrons or, or two any sort of sub, subatomic particles, just I'm going to simplify it now. Thank you. Uh, that that if if one is spinning in one direction, the other will be spinning in the opposite direction, mm. right? Whatever happens, yes. Even if you take one of those electrons and and you blast it a hundred million light years away, and then you read you make one spin in direction A, that other electron, 100 million miles away, will instantaneously be spinning in B. Right. Yeah? Be spinning in the opposite direction. Uh, it's called Einstein called it spooky action at a distance. Um, and she p- says that to him, and she just sort of outlines what it is. And he says, yeah, but is that your question? And she says, no, my question is, if I am to believe that, I may as well believe in God, might I? Because it's a miracle. It seems like a miracle. It seems like a miracle that two particles can be communicating across light years. Uh, whether or not it is a miracle is is a moot point. But the point is that the more I found out about quantum physics, the more it became clear to me that the way that we don't understand the world at the quantum level involves us having to say something apparently magical is going on. So it's definitely something we don't understand and is uh, fantastically complex. And uh, But does that lead you or should it lead anybody to think there's a, there's another greater force at work? No. Um, benign no. or otherwise that's in control of the whole thing? No. Oh, and lots of people do, by the way. Uh, and uh, lots of people misinterpreted my play as thinking that was the message of the play uh, because there's a very clever Christian who's this girl in it who uses quantum physics to kind of create a whole new idea of religion. But actually, the play is deeply atheist, uh, and I am deeply atheist. But, for example, my friend Russell Brand, who is a now become quite religious, is constantly talking about quantum physics uh, as a way of suggesting that essentially God exists. Uh, And the mistake I would say that he is making is we, our understanding of the quantum world is limited and we can only describe it in quite limited ways. And what tends to happen then is we default to ideas of the miraculous to try and describe it. And it is sort of miraculous. It's amazing what happens there but all that is happening when people then say, so therefore some cosmic force or blah, blah must be happening is, no, what you mean is you can't quite fill in the gaps between this amazing thing happening and that amazing thing happening, These this amazing cause and effect. Well, it's just in, in through the ages when, when nobody knew what thunder and lightning was, that was explained as the action of, of God or the gods. Yeah, essentially, essentially that is... That is what it is. I mean, for example, I don't know if you know about the observer effect. Do you know what that is? Yes, yes. Okay, well, so the uncertainty principle. Those, those sort of. I know the terms. Are- they're sort of re- they're sort of related. But the observer effect is specifically about the fact that if a subatomic particle is knocking about somewhere, you can't say exactly where it is. But when you when someone observes it, you can. Suddenly, you can. Suddenly, a person essentially measuring where an electron is, it suddenly is there. And quite a lot of sort of intelligent design, slightly mystical quantum physics type people have used that to say, oh, well, clearly we have got some kind of like power with the natural world. And therefore, 
you know, we are being made in God's image in some way because we are able to create the universe just by measuring it. No. What it means is, is that our methods of measurement, that's all we can do is understand the cloud of probability as this is where the electron is now. That doesn't mean that we have had any effect on it at all. That's just our perception. Newtonian mechanics is foundational to physics. Modern science really is thought to spring from Newton's ideas. It was believed that using his laws, one can predict the motions of systems if you know the interactions between them. The idea of the clockwork universe sort of evolved from that. As always, uh, talking to you, David, it's been a fascinating discussion, which has gone off in lots of different directions. But now it's time to choose my wonder of wonders from you, which is where I pick my favourite from your list. Okay. Particularly difficult, I think, because they're so different. It's not It's not going to be sour sweets, though, uh, but I think I'll pick the sound of a big laugh in response to a new bit of material. It's something you've obviously had lots. I've heard it occasionally. Uh, Thank you, David, for sharing your view of the world through the medium of your seven wonders. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. Thank you very much, Clive. It's been a pleasure. This is a Stakhanov production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the ACAST Creator Network. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.